You're listening to TIP. Hey, how's everyone doing out there? This week we have a fun episode for you because Stig and I talk about the current market conditions. And then what we do is we go through three individual stock picks that we talk about. Two of the stock picks are companies that we personally like and that we think have a lot of promise and that are priced appropriately to give a person a, a decent return, even though the stock market is extremely high right now. And then the last stock pick that we talk about is a company that we think has a lot of cash flow and has a very good business, but would give you a really bad return. And we talk about this to illustrate a couple important points about value investing and just really investing in general that we think is really important for the audience to understand. We'll also discuss whether or not you should invest in Russia, given that the American stock market is so expensive. And we're also going to have a discussion about dividend payments and how that is different if you invest in the U.S. or international. All right. So this should be a really fun one. And let's hop to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, Stig and myself, Preston Pish, here talking with you guys about the current market conditions and a couple different stock picks that we found interesting. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about this because I think there's a lot of things that you and I need to uh, discuss because we've been talking about the market now for three years on the show, Stig. And since we've been doing this show, this market has you know, I'd say for the first year or two, it was really flat. Like it really hadn't done anything. And then ever since we've had the new president here in the United States, the market has gone absolutely bananas. And I'm not saying that because there's a correlation there. I'm just saying that if you were going to mark the time when that happened about around the election time till now, the market has just gone crazy in the United States. We could get into reasons why we think that that's happened, but I think a lot of it is just not something that we can necessarily quantify one way or the other. I mean, we could reverse engineer what we think the reasons are, but at the end of the day for me, I think the central banks are still allowing credit growth within the economy around the world, and that's why you're seeing the markets still going you know, sky high. I'm kind of curious the way you're seeing this stick. Yeah, I think we have a ton of things to talk about, but I also think that the conclusion, not to spoil anything, the conclusion is probably the same. It is expensive. And I think Eric Cinnamon, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, he said it the best way. He said that 80% of the money managers, they believe that the market is significantly overvalued, but they're still 100% invested. And then as you're saying, Preston, then you have more and more money coming in and they all needs to be 100% invested. Well, what are you going to buy? Well, obviously you have a lot of money coming to different asset classes, but you see still an inflow into stocks. We've been talking about this return of 3 to 4%. I don't know if you have an overview of how things are looking in the market right now. Is that still what you would expect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you're at 3% at best is what I would, what I would say. And I, I can see you nodding your head. You kind of see it the same way. We've been yeah. saying that figure forever. You know, I, whenever I was up at the mountain there with Jesse and some of the people that listened to the show, we were sitting around chatting 
And, you know, a couple of the guys said, you know, we've heard you talk about this narrative that you're investing operationally, that you're investing more on the private side than in the public markets. And for us, that makes total sense. And we totally get it because you're getting higher yields. And, you know, I hate to continue to talk that narrative, but, you know, not too much has changed. And then when in the public markets, they even go higher, that only makes you dig in even further into that position because the expected yield is, is even that much lower as the prices go up. So one of the things that I think is a really important discussion is the idea of investing in ETFs versus investing in individual companies. So if you're buying an ETF, you're buying this 3% that we keep throwing around. That's what you should expect to get with your allocated cash flow into an ETF today. By talking about individual stock picks, which is what we're about to do, we're thinking that you could potentially bump that return. Our first pick here, I think that you might be able to get three times that return in this individual pick. But the risk that you have is now you're dealing with an individual company and you're not distributing your risk across 500 companies. So that's where we can't tell you to do one thing or the other. That's where you have to make that decision for yourself. Do I go for three times the yield with the risk that it's only in an individual company? Or do I take a much lower yield, call it 3% and buy an ETF? And if the market crashes in a year or two years and you lose a lot of that in the short term, but then it eventually comes back within another five or six years or whatever, that's just part of the process. That's just something that you have to be willing to accept that volatility by buying into an ETF at such a high market price. So all these considerations are things that you have to be thinking about. So with all that said, let's go ahead and dive into some of these individual stock picks that we think are quite interesting. So the very first one that I want to talk about is called McKesson Corp. And this is a healthcare company whose operations are divided into two major segments. They've got McKesson Distribution Solutions and they got McKesson Technology Solutions. And it's a business that sells pharmaceuticals at the retail level. And it also provides medical supplies and health information technology. This company is big. It is really big. And when you look at their top line uh, revenue, it is $198.5 billion. And their free cash flow for the previous year was $4.2 billion. So this company's massive. It's very, very big. It's in the S&P 500. And the stock ticker, just if you guys are curious about the ticker, it's MCK. So when I'm looking at this company, the first thing that I'm doing when I'm looking at this company that I really like is I'm looking at the top line. I'm looking at the raw number of like the sales that the company's doing because there's nothing that's being deducted out of that. There's no expenses being subtracted out of this is the fundamental number of the money flowing into the company. And when I look at that for this company over the last 10 years, it has done extremely well. Every single year, the revenues are going up. And it's going up in a nice trend. It's going up in a very predictable manner. Whenever I look at the net income, after you back out all of the costs associated with achieving that revenue, the net income's growing. The net income is doing fabulous. When you look at the free cash flow of the business after they're making capital investments, their capital expenditures being taken out, the free cash flow is doing fabulous. It's trending up every single year. And so for me, that's really exciting. When you look at the balance sheet, the balance sheet is very healthy. 
And so, you know, when I'm looking at the competitive advantages and you know what, we're going to email this out on our email list. If you're signed up on our email list, we'll send out a write-up of our assessment of this, where we go through the competitive advantages, the enduring competitive advantages for the company. You know, it's an oligopoly as far as we're concerned. There's other efficiencies of scale that we see with the company. There's intangible assets that look great. And there's economies of scale that we've identified in general. This looks like a fabulous pick. When we go and we look at the future free cash flows and we come up with an intrinsic value of this business, I'm getting a very, very good number. And we're accounting for the potential for the free cash flow to even go down in our model. And with that said, we're looking at about an 8% to 9% return on this company. So if that's true, if we can get a 9% return based on the projection of the future free cash flows and everything that we're talking about here looks good, that's three times higher than what you could get by investing in the S&P 500. And so then it goes back again to my original comment of, are you willing to take a three times higher return than the S&P 500? but have a little bit more risk because you're only in one company that's specifically in healthcare. For me, I'm willing to take that risk. I think that this is a good pick and this is something that I am buying right now. I'm not buying a large quantity of it because I've got concerns from a macro perspective, but I am definitely buying this company and I think that it's going to you know, do quite well moving forward into the future. Now, I want to uh, highlight that this pick came to us from one of the members of our community, and that's David Flood. And David, huge shout out to you because looking through the numbers on this, I'm kind of like, this looks really good. It's rare that I've been able to find a company with such incredible financials. That's a large cap company that's in a space that I think is going to continue to do quite well moving forward. So huge kudos to you for identifying this pick. And we're just really happy that you were able to help us go through it and, and look at this a little bit closer. One thing that I really like to look for whenever I check out the stock, that is how the dividend is growing and how the shares are shrinking. It's very interesting to look back at the past 10 years because what you would like to see for most companies is that they would just slowly increase the dividend, especially if you don't know the company too well and you're starting to do your analysis because of course, we, we had this discussion before, like how much should the company pay out dividend, how much should be stock buyback, and how much should be retained and then reinvest. And of course, if, if you're Warren Buffett, you don't want to see a lot of dividend payments. But whenever you see that for almost all other companies and you see that gradual increase, it usually means that the free cash flows, the money that's flowing out or the cash that's flowing back to the owners it's just growing and it's just growing at a steady pace. And that's what you see for this company. And what you also see is that the company is gradually buying back shares. And it's not to a large extent. And it doesn't seem like they're really timing it. Yes, they actually did buy a decent amount back whenever it was cheap after the financial crisis. But it's more the how do we think about reallocating our capital? You see this trend with a company like. Disney, you see the same thing, slowly increasing the dividend, never have any problems. And then they slowly buy back the shares. And as you as a shareholder are just rewarded. Now, I do want to say that one of the main concerns I have for a company like this, that might be the red tape. I think this is a really interesting company. 
I don't know if I'm necessarily an expert in this. I see a lot of regulations that might change, and I'm not too much into that. But the thing that really concerns me is that how excited I was, I guess, like Preston, whenever I saw it was call it 8%. And it just it shows you something about what you're used to see. Like whatever I'm doing this calculation, I come up with you know, minus 3% for this company or plus 1.5% for the other company. And then I finally look at something and call it 8%, and I just get so excited. And it's just important for me to remember that this is probably not the thoughts I would have, call it five, seven years ago. So I want to be cautious. I want to say, giving the opportunity cost, yes, this might be interesting for that kind of return, but also knowing that if the market should crash, you might be facing a very different result as an investor. And I mean, then that's an opportunity to buy more equity of this. So this is a pick for me that I don't really mind buying at such a high market you know, price uh, for the market in general. The market's very highly priced right now. I don't mind buying this right now. And the reason why is because if the market does crash, I am holding something that I have no problems buying more equity of if the price would even go lower, which you know, when I'm looking through this thing, I'm having a hard time identifying the risks. And usually that's a red flag for me. Like, hey, there's you need to do more research. You're you're messing up somewhere because typically at this point in the credit cycle, you're not able to find companies that are so quality that have such strong financials at such a return. And so, you know, I'd charge the audience, if you're seeing something that we're missing, hit us up on Twitter because we'd really like to know and we'd like to be able to identify that to the rest of the community. But Honestly, when I'm going through this and I'm looking at the potential risks, I'm not really seeing too many relative to other things that are out there. This is one of the best picks I've seen in a long time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. 
That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I really like this, and it really makes me think of Target that we discussed not too long ago. But you also these very, very stable numbers. They were not even as good as they were here from McKeeson. But it, it basically boils down to valuation. So what Preston is basically saying here is that he is very confident that the intrinsic value will just keep compounding for this company. And then if you see the market price crash, well, that's probably a good time to buy a little more of that. Yeah, that's an exciting time. I mean, I'd be looking forward to that. Just as long as I don't see risks that mature out of a crash, they're not really that leveraged. Whenever I'm looking at the company, the industry average for this sector is a 0.8 for the debt to equity and the company's a 0.7. You know, you look at the cash flow statement. I mean, they're very healthy on the operational side. That's where they're generating the money to pay the bills. I mean, it's just in general, I really like it. If you guys go into the show notes, we're going to have a link into our forum for this specific company. And we'd love to have people come in there and contribute some comments and some analysis and help us identify some of the risks that help us identify that as a community. And I think that this is something that we can get some serious value out of. All right. So let's go ahead and talk about the next pick that we've got here. And this one is a Russian company. And I'm sure most people probably know where I'm going with this. So it's Gazprom. And this is a huge business in Russia. It's one of the top four oil producers in Russia. And it's the country's only producer exporter of liquefied natural gas. The company's ticker, if you guys are wanting to look this one up, is OGZPY. That's O-G-Z-P-Y. And when we look at Gazprom, you know, I, I remember talking about Gazprom on our forum, what, five years ago, Stig? I mean, we've been talking about this one for, for quite a while. The reason we've been talking about it is because it always seems to be trading at a low multiple. I've never seen this thing traded at a high multiple. So I think that that's a consideration just right out of the gate. Like historically, from what I've seen, this, this company just does not trade at a very high multiple. And so maybe that's a good thing if you're trying to accumulate more and more equity of it and getting decent earnings for the price that you're paying. When you look at the uh, free cash flow of this business, it's very cyclical. It's all over the place. you know. And recently, you've seen the free cash flow kind of in a decline, uh, 2015 to 2016, and it seems to be coming back down. So when we're looking at normalizing those free cash flows... We've tried to do a very conservative estimate moving forward. We have like a little graph that we'll send this out on our email list and we'll have some links to the articles that we've written on this stuff in our show notes if you want to see kind of the, the charts that we're coming up with. But in general, when you're looking at this thing and you're looking at the multiples that you're willing to pay compared to other companies in this sector, Gazprom has such a low multiple which means that your yield is, is way higher than uh, the other businesses that are trading at a higher premium. And we have a couple different methods. We have a PE multiple, a price the book multiple, a price the sales multiple. And we go through these and we look at what the emerging market is in general. We look at the global market for this sector. And then we look specifically at Gazprom and we compare it to all these other sectors. And when we look at like just the PE ratio, Gazprom's at a 3.7 PE when the rest of the sector is at about a 10 to a 12. So you're looking at something that's like three times less in price for the same amount of profits. Something else that I really like about Russia right now is the fact that the inflation rate 
is lower than it's ever been. I mean, the inflation rate in Russia right now is, is what, like 3% stig? It's not a lot. And so when you're in the past, when, you know, when you're making discounts to this company specifically, and you're justifying why the multiple is lower, when they have an inflation rate of 7% or whatever it was, you, know, you go back maybe five years ago, that was a very strong consideration that's going to erode the profits that you're making on the business. And today, I think that that is much lower. And I think that maybe people are still thinking that that inflation rate is a lot higher than what it is. And when you look at the trend of that inflation rate, it's been going down. So in general, I think that there's a decent return here. I think that the return is you know, maybe around 9 to 10% up in that range, pretty much the same return that we were looking at with the last pick. I think that there is definitely risks here. I think there's a lot more risks here than the first pick that we were talking about. And I think the risks, I think everyone knows what the risks are, and it's the, the governmental risks uh, associated with dealing with the Russian government. They could nationalize things. They could do all sorts of interesting things over there that I think for the typical Western investor like myself, I don't understand that culture like people that live over there. And that's a risk in itself that um, you know I just have to acknowledge exists whenever I make an investment like this one here. And so this is something that I have purchased recently. Again, not a very large position, but it's a position that I'm comfortable taking. And I think that the multiple, I mean, I think it was Peter Lynch wrote in his book, it's, it's really hard to go wrong when you're buying a large company that has a PE multiple of a four. And that's kind of where we're at right now with Gazprom. And, you know, I like it. I think that it has some really good attributes. I'm curious what you think, Stig. Yeah. So I never bought Gazprom before, but I bought Luke Oil a few years ago. And it was not the best experience. I have to say that part of it was because the oil price was cut in half, even though I felt that the oil price was not too high back when I bought that. I think it was like late 2014 or 13, perhaps even. But one thing I realized that was super important investing in emerging markets is what kind of dividend yield can you expect? Because dividends are really hard to manipulate because after all, this is cash that's going out of the company's bank account to your bank account. And right now for Gazprom, that would be 6.6%. And if you look at the payout ratio, it's still very low. I think it's in the 20s or something like that. I mean, there's still a lot more room. The free cash flow is still very appealing for this company. Margin's really good. And then when you look at the risks, definitely there's a lot of risk in terms of the government. But I also think that you need to look at debts. And that's definitely a criteria that it's not too burdensome for Gazprom. Because their debt to equity right now, just so people know, based on Stig's comment there, the debt to equity on the company is a 0.2. The industry average is a 0.4. So it's very healthy on the balance sheet. Whenever you look at something like the price to book, and this is sort of characteristic for all companies, especially in Russia, you just see this ridiculous low number. So right now it's 0.2. I would definitely be very concerned about putting too much emphasis on this number. I would expect goodwill impairments. And goodwill impairments, that's basically just a fancy word for writing down the value of the assets in years to come because of the low oil price. I'm not an expert in Gazprom at all, but I would assume that there was something there. And sometimes, especially in the Russian oil and gas sector, you sometimes see like really high goodwill impairments. But that's really just a testament to how much you should look into the free cash flows instead. 
and how much you should look into the uh, to the dividend payments. So one of the things that's really interesting about Russia right now is the pressure that they have from the government in terms of paying out more and more in dividend. Because they realized years ago that one way to attract foreign capital is to ensure stability in your investments. And Preston already talked about inflation and how that's a big concern. I can say that for myself. Whenever I bought Lug Oil, I was not happy about the development of the ruble, to put it mildly, despite the company still making a lot of money. But unfortunately, that was in rubles. And it's kind of like a risk you just have to account for. But one of the things that they're doing to mitigate that is that they are putting more and more systems in place in terms of always ensuring that the investor will collect a really good dividend. Because, as we talked about before, it's really hard to manipulate. It gives investors some type of certainty, and it also lowers your downside. And as we also talked about before, the dividend yield right now is 6.6%. I don't see that go down at all in the time to come, which is obviously a lot more appealing than, say, 2% on your 10-year treasury or your expected 3% in the market. So yeah, I, I think this is a very interesting uh, pick. I mean, I just look at it from just even a basic level. So this company is trading for $4.30 a share. In one year later, the earnings, the profit that this one share of stock is making is $1.13. So when you take all the confusing terms and everything else off of this thing, and you just look at it from a really simple vantage point, and you're making a buck 13 for a $4.30 stock. And this is a large cap company. I mean, you're not talking about some like $10 million company here. You're talking about a, a $47 billion company. I have a lot of expectation that that profit is going to be able to be sustained moving forward, or at least some of it. If you even took a 50% cut on that profit, you're still making a lot of money on this company. So it's priced to perform. And that's what I really like about it. And you, it's priced to perform in a currency that has really kind of done quite well lately and has started to stabilize and it and it looks very promising moving forward. So whenever I compare a buck 13 in earnings to a company there's a lot of companies in the US trading for $100 to get a dollar and 13 cents of profit. Paying 4 bucks and 30 cents for something, now that's for me that's a steal. And that's something that I have no problem putting my money in even if you're at the top of a credit cycle because how much more can this go down? Something real quick that I want to talk about, Stig, is the oil prices and the gas prices and really commodity prices in general. I think that you're really kind of seeing them at a somewhat steady position. You know, if we would go into a market crash in a year or whenever, I think that, yeah, you'll see the price of oil, you'll see the price of some of this stuff come down because the demand is going to contract significantly. But I don't think that you're going to see things pull back. Anything like we saw two years ago when oil went from over $100 a barrel clear down into the 30s. Like that was dramatic. That was, yeah, that was total destruction. Now, oil's priced at $50, $52 a barrel. You're seeing other commodities really kind of hitting a steady state when you go and you look at the derivatives market where these things are being traded into the future a year from now or three years from now. The price is really flat. Like you're looking at the spot price and the price that it's trading for three years from now as being the same number. And for me, when I see that and I see that flat line, I think you're at a kind of a steady state in that market. So, you know, I like this. I think that this is a, another good pick, but I'm very curious to hear what the audience thinks. I would love for people to shoot some holes through this and 
tell us why we're wrong and, and help us identify more risks. So I'm curious. So you're talking about this stock just being priced above $4. And then the listeners are hearing that you're talking about a buck in 13 cents the year after. So why would you come up with an expected return of call it 8 to 10%? Could you talk about the process and how you think about that? Well, so that's more just me being ultra conservative with what I expect to get out of it. I think on the high end, I think you could, I mean, you might be able to get 20% out of this thing without any problem at all. But conservatively speaking, I think that you got to discount for some of those risks. I think you got to also account for the fact that this thing usually doesn't trade at a high premium to its earnings. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest factors of why I think you might not get 20% out of it is because in the long run, I think that it's always going to be kind of discounted because of the fact that it's a Russian company that a lot of people have concern with the government there. If people are thinking, how can we get that kind of return? And why is it trading so low? Well, let me ask this question of you instead. How do you feel about investing in a Russian oil company right now? And you know, everybody else has the same feeling. So that's, that's really the reason why. And there's so much psychology in this. This is also relates back to what we talked about before with the oil price. Like, how can it be stabilizing in, in the 50s and not too long ago was in the high 20s? Well, sure, if you look at this fundamentally, it didn't make any kind of sense because you can't extract all that kind of price and the utility is so much higher. But there was just all psychology. What does the consensus say right now? And it's the same thing you can say about the market price of Gazprom. Stig, something that I look at, like for me, this is really important for this company. The market cap. When I'm looking at a company that's a $47 billion company, there is a lot of people, there's a lot of hardware, there's a lot of things that are just happening by the sheer size of this business. And that doesn't mean that it can't go into oblivion and disappear. But when I look at how leveraged they are, and they're not leveraged hardly at all, and they have that kind of market cap and they have the revenue that they have that's coming in, I mean, man, this thing's not going anywhere anytime soon going down, I mean. you know, It's not going to be destroyed anytime soon. There's a lot of momentum behind a company of this size. And when you see it priced like it is for the profits that it's producing, I mean, this is, I don't know. I, have, I feel very comfortable buying something like, like this right now. All right. So enough about Gazprom. We'll let the uh, listener decide whether they, they want to buy a Russian uh, energy company or not. But I think it's an interesting discussion. So the next one here is a fun one. And the reason that we're highlighting this one is because it's a, we think it's a horrible pick right now, but we think it's a great business that's making a lot of money. And we want to highlight why we think it's such a bad pick for somebody to own right now. And we're talking about McDonald's. So McDonald's makes a lot of money. And whenever I say they make a lot of money, let me just tell you some of the figures here. So the top line for McDonald's, their revenue in 2016 was $24 billion, $24.6 billion. Their net income was $4.6 billion. So profit, literally the money that is left over as retained earnings for this business was $4.687 billion. That's before the dividend was paid. So they're making a lot of money. That is a very high margin, especially for the food industry, which everyone knows the saying that it's a real estate company. But when you look at this, and you look at the margin, this margin is really fat. Let's talk through why we think this is something that you would not want to own today 
and 2017. And it really comes down to the intrinsic value calculation, even though they, they have so much momentum. This company, you know, when you look at their top line, it's been suffering a little bit lately. It's been going down a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. Their highest revenue, their top line was $28 billion, and now they're at $24 billion. That was four years previous that they were at $28 billion, and they've contracted a little bit. So that's a reason that it should be trading at a discount is just because the revenues are contracting. And it's not. It's trading at a very high price. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. I wanted to talk about McDonald's because... McDonald's has really been on my radar for quite some time because going years back, I just like the numbers and I like companies I know how to value. A company like McDonald's is just really easy to value because it's so stable. And whenever Preston is talking about, well, you know, revenue has contracted and it has, you know, it's back in 2013, it was 28 billion. And now the trading 12 months is around 24 billion. But that's a high fluctuation for a company like McDonald's which really tells you something about this is not like a high growing whatever. I mean, this is a very stable. If you look at the gross margins, we are in the 40s. The operating margin, you know, we are around 30. 
And if something is very stable, it's easy to value. McDonald's is definitely a good business. It's a good business in the sense that it really has no debt. For the conservative investor, it also has a high payout ratio. If you look at the numbers, I d- I'm just laughing here, and it's hard for Stig to retain his thoughts because we just keep saying it's a good company. But in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but I won't eat there. So I'm yeah. sorry. Just, <laughs> just go ahead, Stig. I'll try to not smile so much to distract you. Go ahead. Sorry, Prest. I'm, I'm all about the numbers. <laughs> I don't know if I'm about the food, but I'm definitely about the numbers. And the numbers are good. And well, when you say the numbers are good, the numbers are good from like the revenue, they're, they're stable. But from an intrinsic value, I don't want people to get confused, but from an intrinsic value, the numbers are not good, right? Yes, it's a really good point. If you look at, at numbers in terms of stability and billions of dollars that it's making every year, it's a good company. If you look at how it's priced, it's not a good company. If I look at our model and I put in my assumptions, and we'll have a link in the show notes where people can go in and, and read more about the assumptions, but we're probably looking at 1% return, something like that. I mean, it's not a lot that you can expect. And that would be even worse than buying into the market. But it's also very interesting if you compare it to a company like Gazprom. As you can tell, we're excited about Gazprom. But Gazprom is a lot more risky, despite its size. Way more risky than a company like McDonald's. But it all boils down to the price. If you're paying $4 and then some for a dollar and thirteen cents. That's attractive. And then you look at a company like McDonald's and McDonald's is currently trading at $166 and that's for an earning per share around $6. So it's just not as interesting. So Stig, I want to I clarify because you were saying that Gazprom is a lot more riskier than McDonald's, but you know, Buffett and some of these guys will say that the risk is actually in the price, not in some of these other things that people identify. And so This for me is a perfect example of that because whenever I look at McDonald's, all the risk here is in the price. The fact that the market is valuing it so highly and that you're going to get a 1% return if you buy it today into the long term. We're not saying in the next year or two years, but if you would own this into perpetuity, you plan on owning it for 30 years, I would expect to get a 1% return on my money annually for the next 30 years on this company based on how it's priced today. And so for me, that's a ton of risk. That's a ton of risk because I can take that same amount of principal when invested in the S&P 500 and get 3% based on how it's priced. Or I can go to Gazprom and get what I think is 10% or even higher. So for me, the risk, when you talk about the most risky thing here, it's a business that's extremely stable, that's making a ton of money, but is priced just completely to the moon. So that's why I think it's really great that we're we're talking this company. Now, other people might completely disagree with this. They might think that there's a lot of growth opportunity, that McDonald's is somehow going to grow their top line, which I don't see that happening. And so for me, I, I see this as a huge risk. And it's really good that you clarified that because whenever I said risk here, which I probably shouldn't have used, it's the thought of McDonald's going from an earnings per share of $6 to minus two or $3 for that matter. I don't see that happening at all. And I think that the likelihood of something like Gazprom that could happen also because they're in commodities business. It's a lot more cyclical. There could be a lot of other reasons why they would suddenly, like for legal reasons, why they would see a drop. I don't see that at all for McDonald's. And I mean, McDonald's is a very sticky business. Even though it's not, it doesn't have the same kind of stickiness as a company like Starbucks or a company like Coca-Cola, where people always get the daily Coke or the daily cup of coffee. I mean, people do change what they eat. 
But still, it has so much more stickiness than other fast food change. It's also because of the locations. I mean, it's not always a question about the taste and the decor. And I might get a lot of mad tweets because I say that a lot of the fast food tastes similar. I know there's a lot of hot coffee that would say it doesn't at all. But I think it's also a question of if you're hungry and you want to go for a burger, sometimes you will just take what's more convenient. And it's really hard to find a company, whether it's in Europe or the US, that have better locations than, than McDonald's. It's just in all the right places, even though people sometimes might want to go to Burger King or Wendy's or whatever. You know what you're going to get and it's everywhere. Everywhere you look, it's there. All right. So instead of uh, kind of harping on this one anymore, the reason we wanted to talk it is because we wanted to talk about a great company, a company that's making a ton of profits, but is probably something you don't want to own at this point in time in 2017. Now, as the market conditions change, let's say we have a big pullback, a big contraction, and this thing gets priced and it's at a, you know, a completely different multiple than it is today, this thing might be priced at a 15% return, and then it might be a great time to come in and, and buy this equity of this business. But today, we don't see that at all, and we think it's important to highlight that so you can see a great business at a poor price is a lot of risk. So that was our main point. All right. So at this part of time in the show, we would like to play a question from the audience, and this question comes from Vass. Big fan of your show, guys, and really appreciate the opportunity to ask you guys a question. So with this massive push uh, into passive now, you, get, you have a lot of big names on both sides of the indexing argument. Uh, you have guys like Buffett saying that, you know, the, the average retail uh, investor should just go into indexing and forget about it for, you know, the next 20, 30 years. So with that being said, the way I see it is uh, we, we created kind of a pa- uh, positive feedback loop on the way up. And I, I'm afraid that on the way back down, it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be a positive feedback loop where recession causes people to pull out of index funds and that further pushes down the market. Do you think that guys like Buffett are doing a disservice to retail investors because chances are most uh, retail guys don't have the temperament to stay in when they they're gonna when they face the biggest correction that they're ever going to see in their lifetime? So, what are your thoughts? Thanks a lot, guys. All right, that. So, I really really like this question, and for people following the financial news out there, they probably can't help but notice that indexing has really been something that's been heavily debated recently. Indexing is in many ways changing the landscape of investing. And right now it's almost 20% of the global stock market that is indexed. And you've seen this popularity of indexes for a long time. And at least the way it looks like now and the forecast you can make, it is expected to continue. And so basically what you're asking about, Vas, is what's that going to mean for us? I definitely think you're right about the positive feedback loop. I think that indexing is a factor in what you see right now with the high valuations. But you could also say it has to do with QE, or you might also say it has to do with general state of the economy. There are a lot of great narratives of why you see the stock valuations that you experience right now. But yes, I do agree that the ups and downs to experience in the market, they will probably be exaggerated to some extent. Now, in essence, I don't think it's different than what Warren Buffett's professor, Benjamin Graham, observed after the Great Recession. And I'm sure you can argue even before that, 
when stocks are expensive, investors flock to the stock market and they start selling when it goes down. And as you suggest, indexing probably makes this worse. The question is how much. But really back to your question, whether or not Buffett is doing a disservice to the retail investor. I don't think he is. And as you also mentioned, he's been saying 20 years, 30 years, even a longer period of time for holding indexes. And not necessarily talking about going into indexes right now, but more like a general approach to invest in the stock market. And I think that if investors then start selling anyway, I really can't see how Buffett can be blamed for people not following his advice. And the other thing I would like to add is, what is the alternative to the stock investor? Say that he doesn't invest in index and say that he wants to do individual stock picks instead. So it's important to keep in mind that even if you pick individual stock, it is by definition a part of a market index. You might not buy the market index, but someone else is, and they will also be owning your stock. And I think you bring up a really good point about the psychology in the market. Because we usually know that people would sell at the wrong time. I do think most people have a harder time selling an index, even though it might sound counterintuitive to your thesis. Because at least when you have an index and say that you have lost 30%, then you will have lost 30%, and everyone else has lost 30%. It might be harder to hold on to a stock that has dropped, called it 40%, or even just 20% because you don't have that certainty of following the herd. So Vash, uh, interesting question. I, you know, I have no idea what the next recession is going to look like. You know, I, I really can't even comment on how deep I think it's going to go. I think any type of, you know, conclusion that I would draw would just be completely based on biases that I hold. I think it's going to be deep and one of a 50% or a negative 50% or bit. You know, that's based on nothing. That's just based on, you know, my my feelings, which are which are worthless. I feel like the central banks have been pumping this thing up a lot. And I think that I buy into the Ray Dalio narrative that on the way up it's reinforcing it and on the way down it's also reinforcing with the way that credit contracts. So it's gonna be really a function of how well the central bankers can prop this next credit cycle up after this starts to contract. You know, you could make the argument that it's going to be deep because they don't have the amount of interest rates to drop like they did during the last cycle. There's a lot of people making that argument, and they think that that might be one of the reasons why it could go deep. But for me to be able to say with any type of absolute uh, certainty, I have no idea. I really don't know. With respect to your second question about Buffett, um, you know, the telling people that the best way to invest is ETFs and that that might actually cause more harm than good. I don't know that I'd necessarily buy into that. I think that I think a person either has the temperament or they don't have the temperament. If they don't have the temperament, you know, I I think all Buffett's trying to do if I had to guess with what he's trying to do, I think he's genuinely trying to help people. I think he's genuinely trying to help people get the best return that they can based on the amount of knowledge he expects the average investor to have. There's one thing that I think that he has learned, and that's that most people have no idea what they're doing. And based on that, he's he's telling people to invest in ETFs simply because the fees are low and you can get the market's return. 
whether you have the the temperament to stay in the market when it starts to contract or you know as it's climbing or whatever that's completely up to the individual and just having faith and continuing to do the dollar cost averaging in the S&P 500 or whatever ETF they're trying to track so for calling in and leaving this great question we're going to give you a free subscription to our new intrinsic value course that we just created this teaches you how to value stocks and how to look at individual stock picks and how to come up with a value and an IRR calculation of what you think the yield will be on that stock moving forward. We hope you enjoy that free course. And for anybody else that wants to check out the course, go to TIP Academy on our website and you can find it there. So if anyone else wants to uh, get a question played on our show and potentially get a free course, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your questions there. All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode on the Investors Podcast. We'll see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Yeah,